Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We have a wild card race in the American League. In the National League, too, but you probably care less about that as Toronto Blue Jays fans. The Toronto Blue Jays took two of three against the Cincinnati Reds on the weekend. A very frustrating one nothing loss on Friday. Very few opportunities offensively. Couldn't get to Brett Kennedy, who was literally, literally posting an ERA that would get you demoted if it were in the major leagues in independent ball earlier this year. Now, he had a nice game, of course, but zero runs against a guy who was in independent ball earlier this year. Jays couldn't get anything going offensively. Jordan Hicks grooves a middle-middle sweeper to Christian Encarnacion Strand for a walk-off, a one nothing loss, awful tone setter for the weekend. Meanwhile, Seattle just keeps winning. Saturday comes around, Jays win 4-3. They get Bo Bichette back. Davis Schneider hits a go-ahead home run that ends up standing. Hicks bounces back with a very good eighth inning before he passes the baton to Jordan Romano for the save. And then with the series online Sunday, the Blue Jays explode for five home runs off of Hunter Green. I know that they wanted to get his pitch count up and it's his first start back from the IL and you want to make sure he's stretched out and things like that. It was borderline malpractice how long they left Hunter Green in that game as the Blue Jays teed off on him. Five home runs, two of them for Brandon Belt. Jays win 10-3. to Everyone except for Matt Chapman gets involved offensively. Hyunjin Ryu, tremendous once again, as he told Keegan Madsen and Ben Nicholson-Smith after the game, asked to grade his curveball out of 100. He gave it 100. It was a pretty... Tremendous game for the curveball. Changeup was pretty good as well. Hyunjin Ryu continues to look very good. Bowden Francis gets a, a three-inning save, one of my favorite statistical oddities that maybe we'll uh, we'll talk about a little later in the show. Speaking of later in the show, uh, send your texts into 590-590. Comments or questions you have from the weekend of games. We'll be sprinkling those in uh, throughout the show. In the 11 o'clock hour, we're going to talk to Brandon Phillips. We're going to talk to... Dr. Justine Siegel, uh, founder of Baseball for All, will also get to some of your texts there. Uh, at 10.30, we're going to talk to Mike Petriello. He had a terrific piece up at MLB.com late last week about some theories of why Vlad's season hasn't been as good as we expected and as good as his prior seasons. One thing Mike Petriello did not consider is that Vlad had secretly been dealing with a sore left middle finger. We found that out when... The trainers checked on him mid-plate appearance yesterday. Uh, and then when he eventually got down to first base on a walk, he was changing his batting glove, and we saw that that finger was taped up. He was removed from that game. He's day-to-day. I'm being glib that that is the explanation for his mediocre season so far. But we'll talk to Mike Petriello about all of the theories he went through at MLB.com. We're going to be joined by Caitlin McGrath in a moment as well. So Jays win two of three against the Reds. They probably come out of that series feeling like it should have been a sweep given how winnable Friday's game was, given that they put a zero up on a guy who could very well be back down in the minors uh, within a couple of weeks here. With the two out of three, they improved to 69 and 56. They are no longer in the third wildcard position. Seattle jumped them on Friday. Seattle remains ahead of them, winners of six in a row. Within that, though, The Mariners swept the Astros. So the Astros have lost three in a row. If you look at the American League wildcard standings now, you will see Houston, Seattle, and Toronto all separated by just a game for the final two spots. Seattle owns the tiebreaker 
against Toronto. I believe they've now locked it up against Houston. Toronto would own the tiebreaker against Houston. There are some three-team tiebreaker scenarios there that I haven't quite gone through yet. Uh, Boston, also not far off. They sweep their weekend series. Uh, they are just three games back of Seattle for that final wildcard spot. Tampa Bay still hanging around a little higher, uh, a little more out of reach for teams like Toronto, Seattle, and Houston. But we've got a race here. Three teams separated by a game. The Blue Jays have a very tough series ahead against the Baltimore Orioles, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They're off today, their third off day in the last eight games. And then they hit a stretch of schedule where if you were ever going to go on a run this year, that'd be the time. After they get through Baltimore, they'll come home to play Cleveland. They'll play Washington here. They'll go on the road to play Colorado and Oakland, and then they'll return home to play Kansas City. That is five series in a row against teams that are not very good. Four of them are last place teams. Uh, The Guardians, we just saw, they're not very good. The Jays only took two of four against them regardless, but there is a stretch of baseball coming up here where the Jays should be able to help their positioning in the wild card. We are almost at the time of year where we will be looking at those out-of-town scoreboards every single day to see how Seattle and Houston and, to a lesser extent, Boston and Tampa Bay are doing. Before the Jays get to that part of the schedule, though, it's the Orioles for three more. The Orioles have obviously done a number on the Blue Jays this year. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a positive or a negative. If you're a Blue Jays fan, Ryan Mountcastle has started doing what he does to the Blue Jays against everyone. So maybe that makes you feel better about his dominance of the Jays. Maybe it makes you feel worse because you're about to see him again. We will look ahead to that series uh, probably more tomorrow than today. Today, we're going to look back at the weekend series and talk to Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic about a couple tremendous pieces she had on Blue Jays relievers last week. She joins us now. Caitlin, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am better than I would have been if they dropped that Saturday game and we were talking about only taking one of three against the Reds, but I would be better had they not been shut out by a guy who was independent ball uh, earlier this year. Caitlin, how are you feeling about the weekend overall? Yeah, I think it was good for them to get two or three. It's always tough to sweep a series on the road. So I think they managed well. It was good to see the offense come alive, obviously on the last day as well. So could be worse, could be better, but I think knowing this season and how it's gone, I think that it was a good result. So could be worse, could be better is a, you know, that's a, a good, that's a good title when you write the book of the 2023 uh, Blue Jays season, Caitlin. Yeah, they haven't been terrible, but, you know, things could have gone uh, a little differently. We found out yesterday they are allowed to score a lot of runs. They, they had gone um, 11 of their last 12 games prior to that one, uh, having scored four runs or fewer. They explode for five home runs, 10 runs in that game. Now the home runs themselves, Probably uh, a great American ballpark factor there. I think only one of those home runs would have been out of more than 15 ballparks around baseball, but you take them while you can get them. Um, Nice to see that for a team that still, even after that outburst, only ranks 16th in home runs. Um, Caitlin, what do you think is, is at the heart of the Blue Jays having struggled with that home run side of things and could yesterday, you know, maybe shake them out of it a little bit? Yeah, I think the whole thing off here it's just kind of puzzling to figure out I think that it's nothing more than just the fact that a lot of guys on their team just haven't been hitting to their potential like you look at a guy like George Springer he had a home run the other day but or yesterday but he hasn't hit the ball out as much as we would expect you expect him to be 
almost like an automatic 20, 25 home run guy. He hasn't been that. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Vlad over this season, and he's not hitting the ball out as much as we would think that he would be able to. He's got so much raw power, but just hasn't been able to consistently, you know, hit for it this year. And so I think, you know, up and down the list, you're just looking at guys outside of probably Bo that just aren't producing at the power clip that you thought they would. And then you add that all together and the the team hasn't hit as many home runs. And I think part of that is probably the home factor. The fact that the Rogers center for whatever reason this year has just not been playing as hitter friendly as, we thought it might with the new dimensions. It's been much more pitcher friendly for whatever reason. And maybe that's still like small sample size noise for now. We'll see. But I think that, yeah, the power outage has been a little strange. Obviously, you know, you lose a guy like Teoscar Hernandez, who they traded away. You're not going to hit as many home runs, but you didn't get as many from Varsho. So I don't know how to necessarily explain it. It probably is just all wrapped up in the fact that they just haven't been as offensively strong as we thought they would be this year. But at least, you know, I know you mentioned the ballpark and that has a factor in yesterday, but it was good to see them hitting some home runs and maybe you hope that they can build momentum from there. And Teoscar Hernandez, you, who you mentioned, would be tied for the team lead in home runs with 18 with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. Uh, Bo Bichette returned Saturday. We saw him be very aggressive in a number of his plate appearances, some of those resulting in outs, but you like to see the, hey, I'm going to identify my pitch. I'm going to jump on it. Um, Bo talked about after Saturday's game, the need for the Blue Jays to play a little more fearless. And he had talked on the Blue Jays broadcast uh, the other week with Dan Schulman and Buck Martinez about the Jays approach hitting with runners in scoring position and how in his estimation, they needed to better have a plan of attack and stick to that plan of attack, whether that was hunting a certain pitch or a certain location. Um, now that Bo is back in this lineup, and obviously the team was not hitting particularly well before he went on the IL either, but could do you see a, a, a bit of tone setting back with, back with Bo back at the top of this lineup? I think so. I think that he's just such an influential player what he does on the field, obviously, but also just his presence. And I know the broadcast picked him up a few times when he was injured and you see him sitting with the iPad, maybe talking to guys. And I know just from experience and talking to Bo and talking to other guys and talking to the coaching staff, I mean, he really is kind of like a hitting coach in himself. Like he is really good at, Uh, distilling necessary information to be able to hit. He himself is good at making it simple. And I think he tries to make it simple for other guys. So it's no surprise that, you know, he had a way to kind of diagnose what's going on with them and a way to sort of put it in simple terms and what he thinks they should do. That's just kind of who he is. He's, I think John Schneider called him like a hitting savant the other day. Like he's, he's kind of like that. I mean, he gets it from his dad. His dad's very interested in hitting as well. And so I think that just his overall presence can be a boost. Maybe we were seeing that. Obviously, he came back on Saturday and they won two games in a row. So maybe that's the boost we were expecting. It's going to be interesting to see the Baltimore series. Obviously, Bo um, has played against Baltimore. He got injured in that Baltimore series the last time they were playing them and missed those four games. But 
Uh, he's obviously played a lot against Baltimore and they've been dominant against the Blue Jays. But I do remember last year when they, I think it was September and they had to go into Baltimore and they had to win. And he just like, that was sort of when he started to go on his um, September tear a little bit. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how he steps up down the stretch here when the Blue Jays really need him. He did that last year when they really needed some money. And he did it last year. And so I, I, I'm kind of expecting a, a, he's had a big year, but I'm expecting a pretty big final month from Bo. Yeah, that was, excuse me, a, a four game set where he had uh, 10 hits over the course of that series, including four home runs. So uh, yeah, that would be nice. That would be, uh, and, and hey, Bo's the one guy who at least hitting from the right side doesn't get dinged at Camden because that ballpark suppresses power to left field significantly, but we know Bo's power goes, you know, opposite way and center field as much as anywhere else. Uh, so Caitlin, the corresponding move with Bo Bichette being activated and you and I, and just about everyone else had kicked around the options last week. We thought, well, okay, David Schneider hasn't played a lot. Maybe you'd like him to go down to Buffalo and get regular playing time before coming back up when rosters expand. Or Santiago Espinal really hasn't had a very good defensive stretch and hasn't been good offensively this year. Maybe he could use a, a breather down there to kind of reset. Instead, the Blue Jays designate Paul DeYoung for assignment. Now, on merit alone, that one makes sense. Paul DeYoung hit 068 in his 13 games as a Blue Jay. He was not very good. He struck out 41% of the time, didn't take a walk, uh, was worth almost negative one wins above replacement in just a small window there. However, considering that they had just traded, yes, a fringy relief prospect, but someone of some interest regardless, uh, that they're eating some money here and maybe more than that because those are sunk costs, but maintaining as much flexibility as possible, especially ahead of roster expansion. I would have thought they'd send someone down with options and keep DeYoung around, even if he's not playing that much. Were you surprised by that move on Saturday? Yeah, I was. It seemed like, and so I haven't been around the team, so I haven't been able to talk to anybody and maybe someone else can provide more insight into the decision-making. I mean, on the surface, yeah, he wasn't having a good start to his Blue Jays tenure, but I do think knowing that roster expansions were only a couple weeks away, maybe you could have optioned someone and just brought them back. But I also thought, well, maybe this is a signal of sort of how desperately they need offense. And that is the focal concern right now. And while Espinal hasn't had an overall great season on both ends, I think offensively he's hitting a little bit better this year or recently. Davis Schneider hit the home run that helped them win on Saturday. And so I was surprised and I wasn't expecting the DeYoung DFA. I don't think a lot of people were, but then when I thought about it, I was like, okay, maybe this is just a signal of like how badly the team just needs to get all the offense they can right now. And they just didn't have time to wait for DeYoung to figure it out. And, you know, if he's not being, if he's not able to hit, with consistent at-bats, the way that he was getting, basically playing shortstop every day, are you really going to get much out of him if he's coming off the bench every now and then? And, like, you know, are you really going for him? Is it going to be a wasted roster spot? And I think that the team has had stretches this year where I think they've wasted a roster spot, not necessarily on the bench, but definitely in the bullpen sometimes. And they can't really afford that right now. And then I thought, well, maybe there's, you know, there, maybe there's something they want to do in September. Maybe they want to, I don't know, maybe they want 
Nathan Lucas up, or maybe they want to bring like Addison Barger up and they've been planning that for September and they want to do that. And the DFA with young was inevitable and they just did it now. I don't know. That's kind of what I've been thinking of when it happened. I was initially surprised, but yeah, I think the only risk is a, like it's not great roster um, management or not roster management, I guess asset management. As you said, like you eat some money, you just traded him away. He was on your team for like two weeks. I do think you obviously if Bo gets hurt again, that's like worst case scenario. So mm-hmm. I don't know that you want to like plan for that, but like just <laughs> you just traded for a backup shortstop and then you now you got rid of him. What happens if your shortstop does get injured again or he tweaks the knee or something happens? I mean, you still have Espinal, but uh, I obviously those are all things that you maybe consider. But I think when I thought about it, I just feel like this team, this team is desperate for offense and I think they're just not willing to give anyone anymore at bats that just is not delivering and davis schneider like he hasn't played much but he was still able to come up with a home run and he's still able to contribute and so i think that that's probably what the decision came down to and there's a you know you can make the argument that well davis schneider is young he's a developmental piece he should be getting every day playing time uh, for his development you're also in a playoff race where uh, every game matters here and if davis schneider can give you one extra good plate appearance, then that's important. The last note on the Paul DeYoung side, uh, Mats Vonson has an 822 ERA since going over to uh, St. Louis's double-A team. So a fringy reliever remains fringy. Maybe you don't care that much about the uh, sunk cost there. Also still possible that DeYoung uh, clears waivers and, and agrees to go down to triple-A after the fact. We'll, we'll see how that shakes out. Um, Caitlin, so there was a Vlad situation on the weekend as well. I am, of course, talking about the world's spiciest double play. Um, uh, infield fly, not an infield fly rule, just a fly ball on the infield. Runner on first, one out, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., or if you you know watch it back closely, Whit Merrifield as well, noticing the runner not running out of the box. He lets the ball drop, uh, gets a good bounce. There's, there's a scenario where that could have spun into foul territory or something like that. Uh, manages to get a double play out of it. Heads up play by Vlad. Heads up play by Whit Merrifield to be in his ear and cover first base capably. Uh, what did you make of, of that play? That's uh that's one of it seems like one of those ones it's amazing when it works out but a little bit of a risk there yeah i mean i think that vlad doesn't maybe get enough credit for how cerebral he is he's always kind of aware of what's happening on the field for the most part and i think he's actually a really good defensive thinker out there and you mentioned wit had a part in that too and he's the same way like he's a real cerebral baseball dude too like i think that the Blue Jays actually have quite a few guys like that. It's not that long ago where we had that um, impressive double play from Kevin Biggio too, getting like both outs um, himself at second. And uh, I think that, yeah, like the Blue Jays, they can be a really good defensive team. I mean, I know yesterday uh, didn't show off the best defensive qualities for either side, but the Blue Jays, you know, probably don't get enough credit. I think we've spent so much time, talking about the offense not living up to it and maybe the pitching being way more impressive and defense probably doesn't get as much attention, but it's been really, really good. I mean, Vlad's probably not having as strong a year as he had last year at first base. I think that, you know, maybe some of the picks haven't been quite there and um, you know, whatever. We're just, he's kind of set a pretty high bar with himself at first base. So I think that maybe this year hasn't been quite 
as good as the gold glove year, but it's a pretty high bar. And I think, yeah, like that play was great. That just shows you their thinking out there. And, you know, Vladdy, I know, is always very hyper aware of everything that's going on in the baseball field. He's always looking for plays. You, you know, you often see him looking, um, you know, at third or other bases to see if he can make another play. He's always kind of looking for those double plays. If he can get the opportunity, even the back picks and all those kinds of stuff, he, you know, he works hard at his defensive game, and I think that he doesn't get enough credit for how much of a thinker he is, he is out there on the field. So maybe uh, an overthinker at the plate uh, of late a little bit over his last 21 games. He had an okay weekend, but uh, a 6.55 OPS over his last 21 games. Uh, the other Vlad thing that came up on the weekend was uh, he took a break mid plate appearance. On Sunday, uh, had his finger looked at by the training staff, eventually went down to first base on a walk, and then we saw that that finger was taped up as he was changing his glove. Um, He came out of that game with left middle finger discomfort. Uh, He is day-to-day, we were told, after the game. It doesn't seem like anything too serious. Uh, I guess this is a two-part question. The first part, what is with the Blue Jays and middle finger issues this week? And then I I guess... The, the more serious part, not the worst thing in the world, maybe for Vlad to have a, a day or two down, given that he's been pressing at the plate for a couple of weeks here. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're going to find out Vlad, he was also lifting some weights and got his finger caught or something. Maybe they need to reconfigure the weight rooms. But um, yeah, more seriously, it could be it could be a good break. And the way that you know, Belt's been swinging it basically all year, but just in general, he's been swinging the bat really well lately and the way that Kevin Biggio is swinging the bat lately, maybe it's not, you know, bad to have some other options at first base and to get some other guys in the lineup and give Vlad a breather before things really heat up. Of course you want him in the lineup all the time because, you know, as much as his season hasn't been as good as people hoped, as great as people hoped, whatever, he's still a threat every time he comes up to base um, or to the plate. And, you know, for all the troubles they've had with runners in scoring position, he's actually hitting pretty well with runners in scoring position. It's one of the things he always does really well. I think we talked about this, or I talked about this with someone recently, and the fact that he can usually get a single or move guys along, he's done a good job at that. And so it wouldn't surprise me if he's not in the lineup on Tuesday just because the Blue Jays have been and tend to be overly cautious with a lot of things lately. And I think that if it's just bothering him a little bit, they maybe would just take the opportunity to give him a breather. And like I said, there's other options. You have a lot of guys swinging the bat pretty well right now, and you probably feel comfortable having um, Biggio or Bell at first base and you know configuring the um, offense or the defense that way. And everyone can play first base in a pinch. Whit Merrifield's played there before. I think David Schneider got a couple reps there down at Buffalo. Uh, You can manage. And then, hey, there's Spencer Horwitz and his, like, infinity OPS down at AAA if you really uh, need. Caitlin, the other roster move on the weekend was Trevor Richards returning off the IL. Not the, uh, the best of appearances for him, but we can... Forgive it first time off the IL. Uh, Jay Jackson got optioned down to make room. It was the Caitlin McGrath transaction because you had very nice profiles on both of those guys uh, last week at the Athletic. We'll focus on Richard since he is the one uh, still on the roster. You referred to him as the pocket knife reliever of the Blue Jays. In, in talking to Trevor Richards for that story, uh, how much did it come across to you that he has kind of 
enjoyed and found value, you know, going full Sisyphus here uh, in the challenges of his career, changing roles and figuring out who he was at the major league level? Yeah, I think he's just really appreciative of the path that he had and where he landed. I think that, you know, I asked him about, does he think about those like alternate lives that he could have lead, could have led? I've, he, you know, played in, he didn't get drafted out of high school. He didn't get drafted out of college. He went and played indie ball. He played indie ball for a season and a half before he got discovered. And then obviously a, a Miami Marlins scout at the time found him in playing independent ball, wasn't going to look for him, was actually looking for a couple other relievers. And he happened to just notice Trevor Richards, who was starting for the opposite team, um, and just realized, like, hey, this guy has something. This changeup is really good. And that's where his path started. But, you know, playing in indie ball, Trevor Richards had a time when he was thinking, like, maybe I need to go get a real job. Maybe I need <laughs> to go make more money. At the time, his wife or his girlfriend, now wife, was holding down a job and he was not making much money as an indie ball pitcher. And he just thought like, maybe I should, you know, apply for different jobs. And he was on the path to be actually like a U.S. border guard. And then they decided let's do one more season. And of course that indie ball season is when he gets discovered. And so I think like ultimately my takeaway from talking to him for as long as I did was just like, he's very appreciative. He's enjoying the ride. I think there's something kind of, um, complimentary about being a reliever too because you know relievers just have to live in the moment a lot and they have to just appreciate every day and they have to go into every day fresh and I think that there's sort of a nice sort of narrative or parallel with the fact that he's found himself as this very um, flexible reliever that can kind of do anything for the Blue Jays and has been able to do everything for the Blue Jays. And, you know, a number of people talk to me about how he's been their, their key guy. Like I think um, pitching coach Pete Walker called him like the glue of the pitching staff, just because he's been able to really do anything they've asked of him this year. And I think that probably at the time, he didn't get as much credit as he deserved for kind of almost quasi stepping into the rotation during the months where Alec Manoa was away. I think there was a lot happening in that month. And I think there was a lot of attention on, you know, what's happening with Alec Manoa that we weren't really noticing like, Hey, Trevor Richards is like kind of a, like their fifth starter right now. And is doing a really amazing job at it is also a reliever and is also coming into higher leverage and is like just doing everything that's asked. And he's doing it really, really well, having like the best strikeout rate of, rate of his career, uh, the changeup is better than ever. Like the fastball command is better than ever. All these things were happening and we're not really noticing them. So yeah, I think he's just kind of an under the radar guy and is just doing what he's asked and likes to do what he's asked. And his approach is simple. He just goes out there and gets out. Yeah, and then he hits the IL with neck inflammation, uh, an injury he picked up, carrying this pitching staff. Uh, I kid, he has been very valuable for this team, though. It will continue to be, and I'm sure there are better days than his uh, weekend appearance. Ahead, Caitlin McGrath, uh, that was a terrific piece. Trevor Richards, the Blue Jays' pocket knife reliever, cherishes this unusual rise to MLB over at The Athletic. A great piece on Jay Jackson as well, who's now back with the Buffalo Bisons, and I would bet good money we see him again with the Blue Jays at some point this year. Caitlin McGrath, we'll talk to you again probably next week. Thank you for taking the time out this morning. Of course, thank you. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic, uh, make sure to check out those two 
profiles and all her great work. She's going down to Baltimore, so she'll have you covered for the Orioles series as well. We're going to take a break. Uh, Yes, Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s finger is banged up, but prior to that, he was mirrored in the worst 81-game half-season stretch of his career, uh, no matter where you pick the starting and end points. Since his rookie season, he was also in a a 21-game stretch where his OPS had fallen to 655 over that stretch. Obviously not the home run power we expect from Vlad, but also not, you know, necessarily the walk rate and the batting average and things like that. What the heck is going on? We've spent most of the season trying to figure it out. Mike Petriello of MLB.com sat down, asked Twitter for their theories, examined those theories. We'll take a break. We'll talk to Mike Petriello, see if we can make heads or tails of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s kind of bizarre 2023 season. That's next as Jay Stock Plus continues on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Mike Petriello of MLB.com had a busy weekend. He was writing about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He was surely getting a lot of feedback from Blue Jays fans, hopefully not the guy in the text line blaming media as the reason Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has struggled. But nonetheless, I'm sure a lot of feedback. He also, Mike Petriello, got to see the strokes in New York City. Man, it, that that cannot get old, right? We don't have Mike Petriello. All right. Damn, I thought that was a, a nice welcome, a nice intro. Uh, so Mike Petriello did have a piece up at MLB.com while we try to connect with him here. Uh, 11 theories explaining Vlad's confusing 2023 season. At the time of that writing, he was kicking it with a 778 OPS. That's all the way down to 776. Now, uh, Vlad had... Uh, a rough weekend, mostly because of the finger issue. Uh, he did have a hit in Saturday's game and a hit and a walk in Sunday's game before leaving. But Friday was maybe the most confounding uh, coming off the heels of this Mike Petriello piece. Vlad in the first inning, a runner already on base facing an independent league, a recent independent league pitcher who only throws like 93. Vlad gets up 3-0. You can understand taking the first pitch because you're trying to draw a walk and his command's been spotty, but then struggles with uh, the next pitch and then uh, watches 93 or 94 middle, middle in a three, two count. It's been confounding. The whole season has been confounding. Mike Petriello of MLB.com joins us now, Mike, now that the confounding tech is behind us, we can talk about the confounding Vladimir Guerrero jr. But first the strokes in NYC this weekend that can't get old. How was it? First time I ever saw them actually, which was pretty cool. And uh, it's at a really interesting outdoor venue, not that far from city field where the Mets play. It's like New York's Hollywood bowl. Essentially it's where the U S open finals were for many years. So super cool. Fun to be out at night. Uh, they were great. It was a lot of fun. Is that Force Hills? Yes, exactly. Nice. Yeah, that seems like a, a cool venue. And, and obviously the strokes so uh, ingrained in New York City. They are the meet me in the bathroom uh, band in my head. So Vlad has a, a tough weekend after you write this piece. Uh, how come you didn't consider that he was secretly playing with a sore left middle finger this whole time? Is that a real thing? I did not watch any baseball this weekend because I was going to see the strokes and staying out late and caring for my children. I should, you know, I should have thought of that 
that it was a left middle finger <laughs> that has ruined his whole season. I'm not sure I think that's all of it, but I would buy that could be part of it. He left yesterday's game with a left middle finger discomfort, and we saw actually as he was changing his glove at first base uh, that that finger was taped up. In seriousness, though, one of the theories that you kicked around in this piece, and again, the piece is up at MLB.com, 11 theories explaining Vlad's confusing 2023 season. One of the theories was that while well, he had a knee thing earlier, he had a wrist thing earlier. Um, I know that we can't really, you know, if you're healthy enough to play, we have to analyze the data. But when you look at what was happening in there, when you look at things like his speed and defense uh, regressing this year, do you put any stock in, in that as a potential factor here? Not the factor, but a factor? Yeah, I mean, it's circumstantial evidence. As you said, I certainly can't sit here and say, oh, yes, I know that he's injured and I know that he's not healthy because I don't. But when I asked people, you know, for Blue Jays fans, what do you think are the theories, what's behind his kind of decline this year? One of the more compelling ones I got was, hey, look at his wrist injury. And he was really good before that, which was early May and not so great after that. And the numbers really do bear that out by a lot. And yet he did win the home run derby. <laughs> Oh, it's a little hard for me to say, oh, he's totally injured his wrists or hurt and he, he can't hit because while I know the Derby is not real major league pitching, <laughs> yeah, you know, he still did a great job at it. I, I think the one that stood out to me a little bit more is just that the speed and defense are both down and certainly nobody uh, thinks of his game and says, well, he has to steal 30 bases. Obviously that's not the kind of player he's ever going to be. No one really cares how fast he is, but sometimes you can use it as a, uh, as a proxy for health or for conditioning and it is down and the defense is down. Everything's kind of down. And I will be interested if we learn anything in the off season, you know, after the year is over where it turns out, Oh, I was playing through this or this was barking all year long. Cause we've certainly seen those kind of things happen before. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes when it comes to uh, a knee, you're Ronald Acuna Jr. and uh, an offseason of rest gets everything right. And sometimes that's just a red herring. And and hey, everyone is playing through something by the time you get to late August. So uh, some of the theories that we can put a more definitive uh, quantitative lens on, I think the optimist theory with Vlad's season is that there's been a lot of bad luck here. His swing decisions have gotten a little worse, but they're still fine-ish, and he's still leading the league in just about every hard-hit category, um, barrels, hard-hit rate, exit velocity, things like that. Um, and if we look at his actual results versus his expected results based on all that batted ball data, he's having a top 10 to top 15 unluckiest quote unquote season in the stat cast era. Uh, that obviously can't be all of it, but when you dug into the numbers, Mike, how compelling an argument is that when we're two thirds of the way into the season, uh, three quarters really. Yeah, I don't think it's luck very much at all. No. Um, and I can I can explain why those numbers say that in a second. But one of the one of the numbers I do like to look at in terms of bad luck is so you've got all the fielding metrics, right? You've got outs above average, and you can look at that to say you know Kevin Kiermaier is a great outfielder, or whatever. Well, you can also flip it around, and you can look at that from the batter's point of view. And if you were to be a hitter who's getting crushed by bad luck, by great defensive plays, it would show up from that point of view. And for him, it didn't. And I think what's happening here, like why those expected numbers are so different is the expected number. It's all about what happens at the moment of contact, right? How hard did you hit it? How high did you hit it? All that kind of stuff. And it doesn't tell you what happens on the way to the outcome. And what I mean by that is, if he is hitting it in such a way um, where, you know, there's there's a different kind of spin, if he's not getting backspin, if he's getting a slice. Like, I remember this happened a couple of years ago with Marcelo Zuna, who was having a, a similar season where all the underlying metrics looked great and it just wasn't happening. And it really seemed like he had some kind of 
golf-like slice. And the technology is there to track that. It's just not in a place to analyze publicly yet. Like I hope it will be at some point. And I would like to think that at some point I will look back at this season and be like, oh yeah, he just sliced everything. His bat path was like slightly different. So instead of like going out, it was going, you know, to the left or top spin down or whatever. So if that's true, and if that's the case, I don't think I consider that luck. I mean, that's, that is the way he's swinging and that's what he's getting off the bat. And look, the spin is a fascinating thing because we talk about barrels and he's getting way less distance on barreled balls than we would expect. And then he's gotten in that he's gotten in the path. And I think that the talk about spin on the ball is particularly fascinating a couple weeks removed from Jose Batista day, because to hear about his swing changes, a huge part of it was fine. Unlocking the ability to put backswing or backspin rather on the balls that he was able to drive into the air. So now I'm thinking, well, okay, the, the spin is a real factor here. And Mike Petriello, I, we got to nudge you here to, to make this stuff publicly available. I, I'm, I have an inkling that you maybe get to see some stuff that we don't. Um, I have access to some stuff, but honestly, we, we have done very little analysis okay. on batted ball spin. I would love to say, oh, yeah, I've got the secret sauce, and I'm just not going to tell you personally, Blake Murphy, about it. But I honestly, I don't have anything on it yet. <laughs> uh, okay, so another theory that you looked at and one that you and I were actually a little opposed on before the season was how the new Rogers Center dimensions would play. Now, you have much better tools to run simulations of that. I was doing the crudest of things, uh, and mine were like, yeah, it'll be a little pitcher friendly and doubles and triples will be up. Um, we need way more data than three quarters of a season where the Blue Jays have played on the road a lot more than at home uh, to definitively say anything about the park. But with Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s particular style of hitting and batted ball profile, uh, did you see anything in park related factors as you dug in? Well, he's certainly got a pretty large split. You know, as I wrote this the other day, he had a, a 682 OPS at home and an 862 on the road. And I think everybody knows that he didn't get his first home run at home until June 23rd, which is wild. And I think people want to put that to the ballpark. And I just, I don't know that you can, because yes, obviously there were changes to the ballpark, but it's not like it's changed across the board. You know, you've got a couple of guys, uh, Springer and Kiermaier, for example, who've been hitting better at home than away. And I, I think what people do is oversimplify and say, Oh, well, this is, this is maybe the best blue Jays pitching staff we've had in, in years or maybe ever. And it's because of the ballpark. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, certainly hasn't helped Alec Manoa. It's not like Kevin Gosman wasn't great last year. Like is Kikuchi better? Sure. But he's got new breaking pitches and he's throwing strikes. I think what you said at first is correct, which is it's too soon to say. We have, mm -hmm. we have absolutely no idea. His weird his year is weird enough in so many ways that this is just like another weird thing on the pile. And it's hard for me to say, no, this is the thing. Okay. So I, I think of the eleven theories you threw out there, and the honest answer is it's probably a blend of all of these things. Um, but in addition to, hey, there's something going on with the swing that we can't measure yet in terms of spin or why the contact is coming off a certain way. I think that is probably one a most convincing of the theories that you went through. And then one B would probably be that he is struggling with the fastball and not struggling to a, like, Hey, he hits fastballs poorly, but struggling compared to what he has done on fastballs in the past, especially when it comes to pull side power. You even had a quote from John Schneider in that piece. Um, what are you seeing when you isolate in on fastballs for Vladimir Guerrero jr.? Well, no, I, I think the other good theory is that they took away his home run jacket and yes. now he's too sad. And misses it, probably misses his old glasses, yeah. 
Right, exactly. No, I'm glad you brought up the fastball one. Um, the thing that's frustrating, this is the other day, right? But, um, you know, over the last two years, he'd slugged 808 against four seamers two years ago and 582 last year and only 436 this year, right? And his strikeout rate is way up on four seamers. And, you know, that could go back to what we started off talking about with the speed being down. Is there an injury? Is there a conditioning thing? You know, who knows? Certainly, I don't know what it's like to try to hit a 99-mile-an-hour <laughs> fastball. Um, but a lot of people are absolutely convinced that it's hitting coaches, and they're basically telling him not to try to attack fastballs and to go the other way. And, I, you know, I don't know what's being said in the room. I don't know what approaches are, are being put out there. But I do think people are too quick to blame the coaches when things are going bad and not quick enough to credit them when things are going well. Like, certainly no Nobody wanted to fire the hitting coaches when Bo Bichette turned around his slow start last year and mm-hmm. becoming one of the best hitters in the game. And it was the same coaches there when Vlad Jr. was killing it in 2021. So could it be a new voice is necessary? Sure. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. None of us really know. But that's the number one most concerning thing to me, because when you think about Vlad at his peak, you think like lightning bat speed, right? You think there is no forcing fastball or any kind of fastball that can be thrown hard enough to get past that man's bat. And that just hasn't been true this year. You know, whether he can't, whether he won't, whether it's being taught a different approach, I, I would love to know the answer to that. So that is probably the number one out of all these things that stand out to me. And it's probably, honestly, having read through all these series and obviously thinking about them over the course of the whole season, it's probably from here, game to game, the thing I'm going to try to keep my eye on at a most granular level is really hone in on those fastballs. And I know you didn't watch a ton of the series on the weekend, but he was absolutely flummoxed by 93 flat down the plate from Brett Kennedy a couple of times on Friday. So I don't think, uh, I don't know whether that's uh, the plan you're going up with or just the way you're seeing the ball out of the hand, uh, not great. So, Mike, not all is bad around the Blue Jays. They have really struggled offensively. Yesterday's 10 run out put aside. For some reason, they just keep putting up big numbers on Sundays, and then they struggle uh, Monday to Saturday mightily. But quietly, one thing they've done better in August, and I know you tweeted about this the other day, is um, they have hit a little better with runners in scoring position over the last little bit. I know nobody really wants to hear that after, you know, uh, I think 11 of their 10 of their last 12 games, they've scored four runs or fewer. So it's obviously not leading to uh, a ton of production, but where are you with the Jays issues with runners in scoring position on the whole? Because again, this is one of those things that like small sample, even half a season, we all tend to say, yeah, it's noisy. When you get into the micro splits, it'll balance out eventually. But the Jays were headed for some historic territory there. And we're about 120 games into the season. Um, Bo Bichette even commented on this on the Jays broadcast the other week about, um, you know, the Jays need to be a little bit better sticking to an approach, identifying a pitch or a location and staying within that plan. Um, That to me suggests there's at least some process stuff underneath the noise. Where are you with the Jays runners in scoring position issues? Do you know what the only thing worse than having issues with runners in scoring position is? It's not having runners in scoring position, yes. right? Like that is a much larger issue and they, they didn't have that. And there's, there's been so many studies over the year that says you know, runners in scoring position success is essentially random. You know, like there's so many examples of players or teams who were like great at this one year and then absolutely terrible at it for the next however many years. Like it, not a Blue Jay, but the name I always think of is Alan Craig with the Cardinals about 10 years ago who had like that one amazing season and drove in a ton of runs and they basically never played again. And if you look at, you know, the Blue Jays, 
I remember I dug into this a little bit. I couldn't really find any notable like approach changes or aggression changes or any of it. And it wasn't even everybody like Vlad was, you know, not mm-hmm. having a great season, obviously, but he wasn't any worse with runners in scoring position. Uh, as I remember when I looked into this, it was basically Chapman and Springer. And I think belt was the other guy. And it was mostly about those three names. And yeah, now, now it's turning around, right? Like it's so difficult to say that this is a skill when there's just no evidence. It's actually true. The problem with this is that if sometimes it takes a couple of months to resolve itself, imagine how random it is over a three game post postseason series, right? That's when people go nuts about it. Well, here's, and this is where we're heading for. If the blue Jays can get into the wild card, we're absolutely headed for a scenario where they lose the wild card series. And we point to, well, they struggled with runners in scoring position all season long. And that did them in over three games or they execute. And it's like, well, we were right to focus on it all season. They fixed it in the, uh, in the three game wild card series. Uh, the Jays up, by the way, now to 22nd hitting with runners in scoring position. So not great, but they're no longer at the very bottom of the league. Mike, I want to pivot off the Jays here for a little bit. Uh, you had a fun piece at MLB.com last week. Uh, more fun than the Vlad one. The Vlad one was really good, but it was a little depressing to go through. Uh, the Dodgers <laughs> are cooking right now. And Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman may be the best one-two combo at the top of a lineup ever. Um, what? I mean, it speaks for itself what the Dodgers are doing well right now. But when you look at the state of the National League, you've got a pretty great duo in Matt Olson and Ronald Acuna Jr. in Atlanta as well. Um, what do you make of the Dodgers heating up here and how those two teams match up? Because baseball's random, but it certainly feels like that could and should be the NLCS at this point. I am absolutely convinced the Dodgers are winning the World Series this year. Okay. And that is because, you know, how many great, great, great years have they had over the last decade that have not ended in a World Series, right? And while I'm, yeah, and listen, I'm the type of person who thinks that not only did the title in 2020 count, it counts more in a lot of ways just because of the extra difficulty of that postseason. I know not everybody agrees with that, but they have not had, you know, a full great 105 win season that ends with the title. And then this was supposed to be the year that was this big step back, right? Like they didn't do much this off season and they had guys like Justin Turner leave and Cody Bellinger leave and Padres made all this noise. Like this was going to be the year. And now you have after like the entire rotation got hurt, they're going to win like 101 games. It's, it's unbelievable. And I think that would be the funniest possible outcome, you know, but they're doing it differently this year. If you look at the lineup from years past, it was depth, right? It was like our, you know, 19th best hitter is better than your eighth best hitter. And that's how we're going to win games. And this year it's not really like that. It's we have two all time elite hall of fame superstars in their prime. We're going to hit them one, two, which is not what you would do for much of baseball history. And we're just going to pound you because those guys are so elite. And yes, there's other good players, right? Will Smith is very good. And JD Martinez is very good. Um, But it really, it comes down to like this big duo. It's, it is, it's really difficult to watch this team and watch those two guys and think, Hey, those guys used to play for other teams. I can't believe those teams let those guys leave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it really is something. And to, hey, save a little money or, uh, yeah, I guess pick up Alex Verdugo. Sure. Sure. <laughs> what do you, what do you do in there? Okay. Uh, before I let you go, Mike, got to ask, do you, it, it's been a good week in New York for a guy you were once very fond of. Do you want to take a very delayed DJ Stewart victory lap? Oh my God. I guess I have to give a little bit of context here, but it's <laughs> so boring. I'll give you five seconds worth like four or five years ago. 
DJ Stewart had played, I don't know, a handful of games at the end of a year for Baltimore. This is when Baltimore was terrible. And in those handful of games, he had put up some ridiculous combination of like elite walk rate and fantastic, you know, barrel combination. And I had this chart, which I prefaced at the time. <laughs> I want to be clear about this. This is an insane thing to do. And it was like him, Freeman, Betts, and Soto, or, you know, whatever gods were up there. And then, of course, he wasn't very good and he disappeared. And now here he is being one of the most interesting players on an extremely uninteresting Mets team. And I'm very happy to see it. Four home runs in a week. And uh, I think he had six hits over the, over the course of five games there, man, do I miss when the Baltimore Orioles were bad and would play guys like DJ Stewart <laughs> at the end of seasons. Uh, that is not going to happen a uh, little later this month, Mike, you and the subway ghosts are playing at autos in Manhattan, August 31st. You, you fired up or what? Uh, I can't wait. We're actually playing, yeah, a week from Thursday. And would you believe after all these years, I have never played uh, a show on mainland Manhattan. I say that because we've played on Roosevelt Island, which is technically part of Manhattan, but nobody thinks about it that way. So I'm super excited. Uh, please come out and see us if you're in New York. We'd love to have you. That would be uh, that would be a blast, man. Hope you guys have a good time. Uh, thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. Thanks, Blake Digger. Mike Petriel of MLB.com. Uh, again, that piece is called 11 Theories Explaining Vlad's Confusing 2023 Season. It's up at MLB.com or it's up on Baseball Savant, wherever you want to uh, go check that out. It's interesting to dive into a number of different possibilities as to what's going on underneath the hood with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Now, there was someone in the text line, and I, I kind of joked about it, uh, blaming the media. He's not blaming the media or she. Uh, no name entered, but it's a 905 area code. Anyway, it says the con Constant hedging about Guerrero's season by every media member is bordering on conspiracy. Are you not allowed to just say he's been bad? Uh, he's been replacement level. Look, I, I feel like we spend two or three segments a week on this show trying to figure out what's going on with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I don't know how much we just spent an entire segment uh, diving into his underproduction. I don't know how much more in depth we could go on it now in terms of calling him bad he's still been 15 percent better than league average at the plate this year i know he's a first baseman and doesn't add anything with his legs so that is uh yeah he's been worth half a win that is not nearly nearly enough we've all been very straightforward about that and searching for answers um you know underneath that there are some curiosities and yes some of it is bizarre i know you didn't like that framing uh, but some of it is bizarre his walk rate is up his strikeout rate is down um he has at times improved his swing decisions at times. He's gone away from that. Um, and look, anytime someone is at the very leaderboards of expected stats versus actual stats, it, whether that's Vladimir Guerrero jr. Or Aaron judge or Pete Alonzo or whoever it is, it is going to warrant looking into because anytime we have outliers, they can maybe tell us something about how we're measuring things or uh, you know, the unknowns that the data can't capture in baseball, whether it's, Poor swing mechanics, something mentally, an underlying injury, things like that. These things are always worth examining. Now, to your point about him having been replacement level every year except 2021, uh, that's not entirely true. He was worth almost three wins last year, and that's per fan graphs who dinged him as a actual big negative last year defensively. They did not agree with the uh, gold glove that Vlad won last year, so... Anyway, all of this is to say, I understand the frustration. There is not a media conspiracy. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has been an above average hitter. If you 
remove all context from it. When you add the context that he's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and he is an ARB2 guy who already gets paid a lot and he is a first baseman, yeah, he's underperformed. That's why we talk about it like 100 segments a week and I feel like at times we're borderline doing too much on it. So no, there's not a media conspiracy. Uh, Sorry, we're just not going to call him bad, write it off, wipe our hands of it. Anyway, that was important context for Mike Petriello. I appreciate the passion in the text line. You can keep those texts coming to 590-590 throughout the show. We'll sprinkle them in in the second hour. Right now, we're going to take a break. On the other side, that dude, BP, Brandon Phillips, owner of the champion Texas Smoke of the Women's Professional Fast Pitch Team, and of course, former Red and World Series champion, joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That was at one point the walk-up music of Brandon Phillips, who did a thing I really appreciated over the years, but I think game ops people would probably be annoyed by. He changed his walk-up song all the time. Uh, I feel like I would be the most annoying player. Just like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of feeling this song, this homestand, let's mix it up. And then fans wouldn't know, uh, wouldn't have that, you know, association. Like when, uh, say it ain't so starts playing, you're like, okay, it's Brandon Belt time. I, I'm getting ready for a, a nice long plate appearance here. Brandon Belt, by the way, hit a couple of home runs on the weekend. Uh, one down the line to right, one the other way to left. Both of those coming off of Hunter Green. Hunter Green, who had uh, the worst start of his career. And Cincinnati just kind of let him stay out there. Jays win that one 10-3 as they take two of three against the Reds. Uh, We're hoping we get Brandon Phillips at some point in this segment. You guys have lots of questions in the text line, though. So we'll continue to uh, go through some of those while we wait on BP. Uh, You can keep those texts and questions coming to 590-590. Nick Blackmore is with us this week as a producer. He's manning the text line for me. So, uh, oh, yeah. Also, make sure you sign them, especially if it's a bad text, because I would like to tell you by name that it's a bad text. Um, This one does not have a name. Someone suggested bringing up a Relvis Martinez to play third. We need someone who can hit, not an automatic out like Matt Chapman. Uh, Yeah, that is uh, the guy who leads the leads the league in doubles uh, automatic out. Look, Matt Chapman is in a, in a bad way here. He's had a very rough two weeks and certainly he's cooled off from his, uh, his strong start in April over the last two weeks. His OPS has dropped almost 40 points. He's hitting 121 with a 293 OPS over these last couple of weeks, four for his last 33 with just a pair of walks. I get it. It's been a, a frustrating stretch here. Um, Matt Chapman, again, leads the American League in doubles and on the season has been just fine. He's been better than last year, better than the year before. Uh, certainly not the Matt Chapman you'd hope for uh, when he came out with such a strong April, but you have to live with the ups and downs uh, of guys, especially a guy who came in with a bit of a reputation as being a streaky hitter. Also, he's a, I mean, he didn't look like this on the weekend, uh, maybe due to the middle finger issue, maybe due to the time off, but generally he's a gold glove caliber third baseman. Uh, so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I, I don't understand where that saying came from, but I don't have a better way to say that 
hey, I understand you're frustrated, but let's not go way, way, way too far with that frustration. Uh, Matt Chapman's still gold glove caliber third baseman and uh, has at times this year floated this entire offense. Aurelvis Martinez, though, while we're on the topic, interesting weekend for him for the first time in his minor league career. He drew some starts at second base. The Buffalo Bisons continue to move guys around a bunch so that everyone has positional flexibility when and if they need to be called on. I talked about this a little bit on Blue Jay Central uh, on Sunday. If you look at what's going on down at the minors, uh, so you already have a couple of versatile pieces in, you know, one Otto Lopez before uh, he hit the 60-day AIL, a Rafael Lantigua who bounces all over the diamond. They have had 13 different guys play left field, 12 play second base, and uh, 12 play shortstop. So if you're looking at the key prospects, the Jays have put an emphasis on rather than hoping one guy excels at one position, everyone can play a couple different positions. And Matt Chapman is a part of why, I think, and it's that Matt Chapman, Whit Merrifield, Kevin Kiermaier, Brandon Belt are all free agents this summer. And if you're looking at potential holes in left, second, third, and DH, um, you know, having multiple options who could fill each of those positions is helpful. Maybe you come in with a camp competition and, and hey, instead of competing for third base, Barger and Aurelvis are competing for second base. And we didn't anticipate that, but the third base position was easier to fill on the free agent market. Who knows? Anyway. Spencer Horwitz, who's the best bat down there, traditionally just a first base slash DH type. They've tried him in left field. They've even given him a couple reps at second base. Um, from what I, I didn't watch those games, but from what I heard, they were not the, uh, they're not something I'd expect to see at the major league level. But even with a, a player like that, who's bat first and, and positionless, uh, the emphasis is on positional versatility. Davis Schneider, before he came up, had played left, second, first, third, and right. Ernie Clement, who's been up and down a little bit, has played every position on the diamond this year, including pitcher, except for catcher and center field. Addison Barger uh, has played most of his time at shortstop, but he's also played third, right, and second. Aurelvis Martinez, traditionally a shortstop prospect, although there have always been concerns about whether or not his bat would stay at, or his, uh, his glove could stay at shortstop, just given the size and that he was never an elite defensive shortstop. Uh, he has also played third base and second base. So while this person's question is uh, a little over the top with the, a little over the top with the uh, Arelvis replace Matt Chapman right now aspect, uh, there is a chance that, you know, one of these guys comes up, Hey, if not later this year, then certainly next year, they are valuing positional versatility. Um, so we are, I, I don't think we're going to get Brandon Phillips after all. Um, this is going to be the Matt Damon on Kimmel thing now, where I'm just going to tweet out that we're having Brandon Phillips every day and we won't end up uh, having Brandon Phillips. Uh, we'll see if we get the call from him, but in the interim, uh, keep the text coming to 590, 590. Um, a couple people tweeted in at me as well. Uh, there was one from the aptly named radio critic on Twitter, uh, who said, uh, batters were hitting 087 against Kennedy's fastball going into the start. So not sure it's the best example clearly has some ride deception. Um, I mean, the ride is something that we can measure, uh, the deception we can't really, but it was a seven inning sample coming into this one. And Kennedy was getting hit very well at triple a and 
in the independent league before uh, getting this nod. So I'm, uh, I mean, look, there's always something to be said for no one's seen this guy before. You don't have a great book on him, but if you have a 463 ERA in indie ball and an ERA over four in AAA, um, I'm going to suggest that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Matt Chapman should be able to hit your fastball. It's a good note though on the, uh, on the, Numbers against it. It'll be something to watch if Kennedy gets more opportunity. But um, yeah, nothing we can measure and nothing we can see and nothing in the statistical profile suggests he's someone who should be able to uh, shut down an offense that wants to be in the playoffs. Uh, again, you can keep your text coming to 590, 590. Uh, Dan from G-Town says, love the show. Uh, I have the Jays going 22 and 16 the rest of the way. If they get there, the pitching staff can take them to the World Series. I love the optimism. I think the bats have to get going at some point. Like, look, it's it's an oversimplification, but your stars do have to play like stars at some point on a playoff run. We're seeing that right now with the Seattle Mariners, the hottest team in baseball. A huge part of that is that Julio Rodriguez has gotten back to being an all-world talent. You can do things with your pitching staff. And hey, guess what? Over the stretch that the Mariners are on this run, the Jays have the number one ERA in all of baseball. The Mariners are third. The Jays have the number seven WRC plus the Mariners are ninth. The Jays have been better than the Mariners and their pitching staff has been better, but you see over a stretch like this, how just a star getting red hot and kind of carrying your team for a stretch uh, can affect that. I do. Of course, like the blue Jays pitching in a playoff scenario, they have, I think five starters that you could make a reasonable case for starting a playoff game. You're not going to use a five man rotation in the playoffs. You're going to want to lean on Gosman and Brios a little bit more depending on the matchups, uh, maybe Kikuchi or Bassett. We'll see where you factors into all that as we see him pitch a little bit more. And then, yeah, your bullpen is pretty well suited to shorten games in the playoff style. Um, where the text questions are a little all over the place. So bear with us. I'll just, uh, I'll just kind of, Kick him around. Keith from Barry uh, thinks Vlad has been dealing with a left hand injury, much the same way Lourdes Guriel had one last year. Um, this could explain why he isn't as expected. Let me know what you think. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a, there was the wrist thing, there was the knee thing, there's the middle finger thing. Now, I all of those things are relevant, and I, I mentioned the Ronald Acuna Jr. example earlier that he dealt with a knee thing all year, and we found out afterwards how it was affecting his swing mechanics and sapping some of his power, and he is looking pretty good now. I think the only choice we have, though, when it comes to at least the numbers side of things is if you are healthy enough to be in the lineup, we have to evaluate what you're doing as is. There's also – so the one area that I, I don't – I can't quite – make heads or tails with if, if injury is an underlying thing, why are the batted ball stuff still, why is the batted ball stuff still so good? If it's a, a wrist or a hand thing, why is he still able to smash balls the way he is now? Maybe there's something like my Petriello was getting at with the swing plane or the spin he's putting on the ball. Um, maybe there's something in there, but given what we can measure and generally what, what injuries we associate with what issues at the plate, um, it's hard to put it all on potential injuries. And again, you're healthy enough to be in there. You're healthy enough for us to evaluate uh, what you're doing. The other component of that, I guess would be, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know the, the injury stuff. I think we can, we can note it as a potential factor, but you're in there. You're in there. Uh, Veronica from Scarborough 
says, for years, the face of the Blue Jays has been Vladdy, and the team has been marketed as such. Bo has quietly been more consistent and reliable and is emerging as a leader. Uh, is Bo the new face of the Blue Jays? Is it safe to say he's the franchise player the team should build around? Um, honestly, I, I mean, I think your analysis of what has happened with Bo is absolutely correct. I've always kind of felt like Bo and Vlad were co-marketed as the faces of the franchise, and I think where Vlad has emerged a little bit more is just that Bo is such a a quieter monotone business, like go about my business kind of guy where Vlad plays into that stuff more. He does the placata stuff. He does the home run jacket. Uh, he's more willing to, you know, play ball on some of the sillier stuff. I, I think that's really been the only real difference on the marketing side. I think with either of these guys, you need them both. You can see that Bobachet can add a jolt to this lineup. Bobachet was one of the very best hitters in baseball before he went down injured, and the Blue Jays were still struggling uh, a little bit offensively as a team, even as Bobachet led the league in hits and was in the race for a batting title and leads the team in home runs. You need more than one guy, and this is part marketing, part roster building, but also part just the reality. You need both of those guys uh, going. So, yes, Bo has emerged as more of a traditional leader and borderline hitting coach during this injury uh, part, and he has been the team's best position player. That part's true, Veronica. Uh, Howard from Thornhill asks, is the biggest mistake the Jays made at the trade deadline not adding a bat? Absolutely. Um, we said it at the time. We said it heading into the deadline. We said it coming out of the deadline. This team could have used another bat to the bench. Um Look, you're looking at a bit of a roster crunch at some point, but particularly when Bo was down, you could have used a, an extra, some extra oomph there, even if you did have to give one of the spots in the lineup every day to a lighter hitting shortstop in Espinal or DeYoung. But I think you look at this roster right now and, you know, Kevin Biggio has reemerged as a good bench bat and kind of 10th man who will bounce around a little bit. You could still use another guy and look, maybe they think David Schneider can be that guy in a pinch hit and part-time role. We'll see. Um, my, my concern with David Schneider in that specific role, I like him starting against lefties like he did on the weekend, but if he is going to be a guy and the sample's kind of small here, but if he's going to be someone who struggles with high end velocity, that makes it tougher to find pinch hit appearances for him because most relievers throw very hard. There are only so many, you know, Adam Simber. I'm I can't remember if it's Tyler or Trevor Rogers, which one throws the the submarine sidearm. Um, there are only so many guys like that. So that's something we'll we'll need a little bit more sample on, but it's something to keep an eye on and keep in mind with Davis Schneider. Uh, but yeah, they could have used an extra bat. You know, Ross Atkins even sounded pretty frustrated in his media availability after the deadline about their inability to do that. So, uh, yeah, I think, and look, we look ahead to the playoffs and what a bench construction looks like. You'd probably like someone who's a more natural yes as a pinch hitter. This also, weirdly, the bench doesn't have a, a lot of speed, and that's where maybe Nathan Lucas or uh, even a Cam Eden plays into a, a potential uh, playoff roster spot situation. Uh, by the way, Paul DeYoung is no longer on the 40-man as a result of being DFA'd. That is almost surely the Chad Green spot eventually, but I wonder if the Jays maybe make a different 40-man move at some point between now and then uh, just to keep an extra body or two playoff eligible, someone who has that very specific end-of-game utility. Uh, Matt from Thunder Bay uh, says, maybe Vladdy needs to be dropped down to six or seven like Bo last year. Um, the tough part about that is that there are not enough guys hitting 
to drop Bo or to drop Vlad to six or seven, really. And again, this is the the tough part with Vlad is that he is hitting poorly by the standards of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and what any reasonable expectation should be for him. And yes, he struggled even more so over the last 20 games or so. But this is a team where Bobachet's clearly the best hitter. Brandon Belt has the next best OPS on the team. And then everyone else has kind of been up and down. If you're dropping Vlad to six, let's say even six in the lineup, let's say, okay, you go Wit, Bo, Brandon Belt. Dropping Vlad to six means that someone from the Matt Chapman, Danny Jansen, Dalton Varsho, George Springer group, two of those guys are in there, Alejandro Kirk. And yes, two of those guys right now, you're probably okay with uh, with George Springer and Danny Jansen being in those spots. But game to game, week to week, that has really changed. And I don't think, you know, I, I a week ago, if you had said, hey, put, or two weeks ago, if you had said, hey, put George Springer and Dalton Varsho there and drop Vlad down, um, Whit Merrifield's still hitting a lot, but he's cooled off a little bit after that power surge. Um, I think that's just kind of, you know, Vlad's still third on this team in OPS. Uh, I, I wouldn't hate it, but I don't think you're going to see it is, uh, is my answer there. Um, Cam from Brantford says made the road trip to Cincinnati. Not a ton to do there. Tried the skyline chili. Uh, cool, man. I hope you had a good trip though. Uh, I, I would be interested to hear what people thought of skyline chili. It's uh, I thought it was a little ho-hum given the hype, but that's regional foods for you. Uh, Ian in Guelph says, I think Jordan Hicks is overrated. Of course, his stuff is gross and he can be good at times, but people are dazzled by the velocity and don't pay enough attention to the erratic results. Still a good addition, but he should be below Romano, Swanson, and Meza. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think people do pay attention to the erratic results because every guest we had on to talk about Jordan Hicks after the acquisition used the term roller coaster. Uh, this is what you're going to deal with. Uh, I, I thought Sunday, Saturday's performance was a lot of fun where he was just like, you know what? I gave up a homer on the sweeper on Friday. Here are 1,402 mile an hour sinkers. Uh, but yeah, anyone like that, there's going to be some control issues. Um, you know, he doesn't have the greatest feel for his sweeper location right now. I think he should certainly be behind uh, Romano Swanson. They have tended to, even though he's clearly a high leverage guy, they tend to pick certain pockets because they like the way that splitter plays against certain player types. Um, so I think Hicks will probably be more of a, if you line up seven, eight, nine, you pick your pocket for Swanson, you have Romano ninth, and then he'll man whatever pocket Swanson isn't in. Of course, Mesa in that mix uh, as well. And Mesa got back to doing a very good job of uh, not allowing inherited runners to score on the weekend. Uh, Brian Toronto says, great show as always. If a starter goes down, Manoa is not throwing without draining the pen. What do the Jays do? They have nobody to call up. Brian, this is a, a good point and something that is a little odd about Alec Manoa having not gone down to AAA yet. Uh, if anyone missed it, John Schneider was asked about this on Saturday by Ben Nicholson Smith. And Schneider said that Manoa is actually, even though the plan when we talked to John Schneider Tuesday was for Manoa to start one day last week with Buffalo. Uh, Schneider revealed that Manoa was back in Toronto still, and they were reevaluating the plan. Uh, they asked the follow-up Ben and Keegan and Arden asked uh, one of them asked the follow-up about, well, is this kind of like where he was when he got sent down before where you're looking at X, Y, and Z from his side sessions. And it was a half answer, but basically yes. So we're in this weird spot again with Alec Manoa, but you're right, Brian, he is the next man up. And this is why, even if you think that the best thing for him is to be shut down completely 
and reset and start to focus on 2024, the Blue Jays don't have the starting pitching depth to do that. Wes Parsons has started to look okay at AAA. Mitch White started a game the other day and only gave up one over three innings. Uh, Bowden Francis continues to look good in length. But yeah, I think you would rather turn to uh, the guy who has shown he can start in the past um, while he's still around even if the results haven't been that great. And by the way, his 491 ERA um, bef- in the in-between was not good, but you could uh, you could survive it. By the way, I mentioned Bowden Francis. Just a little stat note for you, uh, because I was playing around with it on the weekend. So he had a three-inning save. Last Blue Jay to do that, Yusei Kikuchi, late last year. Uh, Dwayne Ward did it 16 times, which is ridiculous. Uh, so Bowden Francis in some nice territory there joining uh, Yusei Kikuchi, guys like Tommy Malone, Ross Stripling, Marcus Stroman as guys who have come out of the pen and given the Jays multi-inning saves in recent years. Uh, one other stat thing, it's a little mean, but because I have it open, uh, Paul DeYoung, if this is it for him as a Blue Jay, was worth negative 0.8 wins above replacement per baseball reference. The only Blue Jays position player to have a wins above replacement that bad in less time. Socrates Brito, not a, not a name you want to be with in uh, blue Jays lore. Get back to some texts here. Uh, Steven Alora says, while Bo is an elite hitter, he just doesn't seem to be one of those players that can carry a team. Uh, Steve, that's just, it doesn't exist in baseball. Really. You can't like, there was a stretch this year where Boba was probably short of Shohei, the leading MVP candidate in the American league. It's just, you can't hit in nine spots. He's become an average to slightly above average defender at the most important position on the diamond and leads the league in hits and is headed for a batting title and leads the league in home runs. Um, maybe, yeah, he doesn't have 40 home run potential where he's going to uh, completely win games for you. But the reality is, is like, even look at the best teams in baseball right now, like, Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman, Ronald Acuna Jr. and Matt Olson, uh, Corey Seager when healthy, surrounded by a bunch of guys. This this tends to be how it goes. Um, it's hard to uh, it's hard for one guy to carry things. Um, someone asks if Otani doesn't resign with the Angels, do we think the Angels would entertain offers on Trout? Uh, yes, I do because he's owed a lot of money and hasn't been able to stay healthy. That's a uh, that's one where obviously the talent is there. It's a lot of money, but yeah, you could kick the tires on, on Mike Trout in a, maybe he moves to left field slash DH. It's Mike Trout. It's just money. I don't have much of it, but other people do. Uh, so why not? Um, there are a lot of questions at the text line, by the way, uh, if I don't get to yours, I apologize. We will keep them uh, as kind of a cue for throughout the week as we've uh, done Joe in North York. Last one before we take a break here says, hey, Blake, Kikuchi needs to get a start in a three-game wildcard series. Uh, Gosman pitches game one. Maybe Kikuchi gets game two. Who pitches game three? So, Joe, I would say that um, Gosman and Barrios are locks for a wildcard series. What order they go in, you'll you'll determine later. Um, I think, yes, on merit, you say Kikuchi has been the Blue Jays, uh, one of the best three pitchers for the Blue Jays. With Kikuchi and Bassett, though, both of them have fairly significant platoon splits and both of them have some interesting things in terms of which type of hitter they do well against and they do poorly against. If the Blue Jays were up against, uh, this isn't going to happen, but because this is the next series they're playing, if they were to go up against Baltimore, for example, that is a lefty heavy lineup 
in a ballpark where right-handed hitter power is suppressed, that to me screams Kikuchi matchup. Now, if you're against the Astros who have very few lefties and you're suddenly not that worried about Chris Bassett having extreme platoon splits and having given up 18 home runs to lefties, maybe you can make the case there where Bassett as a starter against Houston with Kikuchi available out of the bullpen makes more sense than Kikuchi starting because Bassett's not going to give you much out of the bullpen. I, I think that third spot will be pretty matchup dependent and look things can change over the last five weeks here but joe you're right kikuchi's been unbelievable and we've gone from well he's obviously the guy to move to the bullpen because his stuff would play so well in the bullpen to yeah at least matchup dependent he is very much in the mix to start a wild card game and against the team that's lefty heavy or against the team where the ballpark isn't super home run prone uh to right-handed hitters yeah he's arguably your number two guy in a series like that. Uh, again, the order you just kind of figure out based on where you're at and who's rested and how you want to line up the next series and things like that, but very much in the mix. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Justine Siegel, founder of Baseball for All, former MLB coach with a couple of organizations. I will talk to her about where baseball for all is right now, uh, where women's baseball is, her experience uh, going from youth player to PhD in sports psychology to working in major league baseball organizations and coordinating on the baseball side with the league of their own should be a fun chat. Dr. Justine Siegel joins us next as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports radio network and sports at 360. Everything you need to know about the blue Jays, Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's off tonight. Sorry we didn't get Brandon Phillips for you uh, a little earlier. Again, we'll do the Matt Damon thing uh, on Kimmel. We'll keep advertising him and then not having him. Uh, But we do have a tremendous guest with us now. It's Dr. Justine Siegel, founder of Baseball for All, former MLB coach Dr. Justine Siegel. Good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm great. How are you doing? I am good. Um, so for, let's let's start with baseball for all. For for those who don't know, a nonprofit uh, aimed at providing access to opportunities for girls to play, coach, lead in baseball. Uh, you guys are coming off of the first ever Pony Girls Baseball World Series, which uh, baseball for all has a, a part of as part of their ambassador program. Uh, how was that? How has this summer of baseball for all gone? Uh, the summer's been great. We've been growing tremendously. Um, lots of girls want to play baseball out there. Uh, we're based in the U.S., but we have a lot of Canadians. I'd say about 100 girls come to our national tournament, um, and uh, it's it's wonderful. And, um, you know, girls love baseball just like boys do. So it's, it's been a great summer. We had our tournament. We went to Japan for the Pony World Series. And, and of course, the World Cup that just happened in Thunder Bay. Yeah, the World Cup and Canada punched their ticket to the finals in 2024. So anyone who uh, you know wants to wants to follow along with that next summer uh, can look ahead to Canada being a part of the Women's Baseball World Cup uh, as well. So this was also the eighth year that you guys have had the Baseball for All Nationals program. I, I saw David Wright's even in the mix as a coach. Uh, how, how much fun was that part of things? Yeah, I mean, we've had a, uh, different people come in as coaches. Obviously, like in Arizona, there's a lot of former major leaguers uh, come and coach. So it's just great. It's just the girls getting a chance to be girls 
and playing baseball, right? They're just ball players playing against other girls um, versus being the only girl on their team or in their league or in tournaments. So it's just a lot of fun. It's very empowering, and it creates community for these girls to continue to keep playing. And people can go to baseballforall.com to to read more about that initiative. And Justine, I, I know that your own kind of path started when, yeah, you were one of the only girls playing on your baseball team. And I think you had said at 13, your coach tells you, well, hey, uh, switch to softball. And that kind of starts your journey da- down this path. Um, for anyone who doesn't know your story, can, can you retell a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to go down the, this path, but first as a coach and then with baseball for all? Yeah, for me, you know, when I was first told I should quit because I was a girl, I just thought, like, this this isn't fair. And just, it, I was never going to quit, but it was the uphill battle. That was the beginning. And uh, the more people tried to take the game away from me, the more I loved it. And, uh, you know, since then, um, I actually uh, coached the Royal York Baseball Camp in Toronto for about five years uh, when I lived in in Toronto. And um, I went on and became a college baseball coach and uh, then the first woman to coach professionally, men's professional baseball. Uh, And And, uh, so, yeah, if I had listened to that guy say you shouldn't play baseball, you know, baseball for all would have never happened. You know, this just there's such a chain of events, and and I think that coaches need to be careful what they say to their kids. Yes, uh, unless they're going to use it for motivation. Yeah, I guess I guess that in your case, yeah, that that coach uh, ended up being the the motivation, the whiteboard material. But I don't think as a coach you want to be uh, whiteboard material for uh, for all the of the kids to follow. So um, on on your way, you you received a PhD in sports psychology. Um, throughout your time, and, and I'm mostly curious with the the MLB side of things. I know you were able to coach because of your baseball acumen, and you would throw batting practice and things like that. Um, but where did that sports psychology background, how, how did that help in your roles at the major league level or at the collegiate level? Um, so I coached uh, instructional league back in 2015. So I was the first woman to, to, to break that barrier within major league baseball. And I was with the Oakland A's. Um, right now, Alyssa Nakin is in San Francisco with the Giants um, as the first one in the major leagues. Um, I would say my sports psych, I specifically got my degree to break barriers. I mean, that was that was the reason. I was 16 when I decided I'd get a PhD so I could out-educate the other men who may have had more playing opportunities than me because I wanted to coach college baseball, and then it proceeded to professional. So how does, how does sports psychology just becomes a part of how you coach, how you communicate, how you learn, what motivates others, how to break things down so they learn it better. Um, so it's really a part of who I am versus sort of this outside practice of what I did, if if that makes sense. It does. And I I wonder, too, um, gender equity of what you have done aside, when it comes to sports psychology and the ability for major league teams or their minor league affiliates to apply some of those elements of player development and player health, uh, where do you think we are as as a baseball community and, you know, fully fully understanding, I mean, we'll never fully understand, but but as best we can, and then utilizing the mental skills and psychology side of sport, um, not just for player health, but if we're being more, you know, cold and baseball front office style about it, to optimize performance too. 
Um, that's a good question. I think we've never been in a better place uh, as, as more and more teams are implementing or are using um, mental performance coaches. Um, and also there's now becoming awareness about mental health. So I, I think that's great. There's a lot more to do. Um, every team needs to have mental performance coach with them. And I think also um, training coaches in mental performance is going to be beneficial. So it's not just players uh, learning how to visualize. It's also coaches learning how to communicate better. And uh, and then it needs to sift down into the youth level so that they, they gain these tools so they could be successful, not just in sports, but in life. Yeah, it's a great point. And we've talked to a couple, um, you know, Travis Snyder, former Blue Jay, is working on some things in that regard uh, as well. Just the mental skills side for uh, both parents and coaches and eventually players as well. Um, Super important to keep in mind. Um, So, Justine, uh, the Sabre Women in Baseball Conference is coming up in late September in Rockford. Last year, you received the Dorothy Seymour Mills Lifetime Achievement Award there. I, I know you'd written a paper, co-written a paper there uh, back about a decade ago on the differences in, and preferences between softball and baseball. How important a conference is this uh, to you and generally to baseball as we continue to um, try to improve gender equity in the sport? Well, Sabre... You know, the organization, if you're a baseball fan, everyone should join. Uh, I think just, you know, they, Sabre collects all of the history and, and analyzes a lot of the stats and so on. But uh, what they're also doing is focusing on women as well, kind of a lost history that's, that's being brought up. And I just think it's so important to have these conversations about how women can can be in the game and the different ways women can participate, not just as fans, but, you know, in stats and in coaching, in, you know, GM, like women don't want to just, <clears throat> they don't want to just watch the game. They want to be in the game. And and that's an important conversation, but then we also need involvement. We need movement and we need to make that happen so that girls can see that these jobs are, are available to them. That's a, that's a great point. And, um, you know, it's nice that we're starting to see, you, you mentioned uh, Alyssa with San Fran. There's Sarah Edwards in the Phillies organization who's also still playing baseball uh, on the side, having transitioned from softball. Um, when you look around at where Major League Baseball and, and we'll consider affiliated ball a, a part of this as well, um, you know, relative to where we were, say, in 2013 when, when you wrote that paper or just over the time that you've been doing this work, um, are, are we... Obviously, we're moving in the right direction, but have, where would you evaluate um, you know, where we are as a, as a baseball community with respect to that gender equity that you've worked so hard on? Uh, the gender equity in Major League Baseball and its affiliates, it's definitely getting better. We're definitely on the way up. We're, you know, we're just not done. The work still needs to be, to, to be had and uh, more opportunities. But, but we are on the up. Um, I would love to see uh, Kelsey Whitmore, who's playing in the Atlantic League, be signed by an affiliated team. Um, you know, I think that's going to be an exciting barrier to get, to get across. And I, I think Kelsey's ready for it. Um, I think you have Jean Viev from Australia throwing 86 left-handed pitcher, six feet tall. You know, that's another exciting prospect. Um, so it's, it's gonna, I think a lot of great things are going to happen in the next five years. 
Well, I, I hope so, and, and uh, you would know better uh, than most. So uh, to take it a little lighter, Justine, I know that in addition to all the great work you do at Baseball for All and your, your hands-on coaching, uh, you've also been the baseball coordinator for a league of their own. Now, I know there was the unfortunate news the other day that it doesn't sound like we're getting a second and final season because of how the strike and everything like that ha has kind of delayed the rollouts of certain shows. But what was your experience like being the baseball coordinator for season one, how much fun did you have getting to do that? Obviously, it was an honor to continue the name of the League of Their Own and to tell the story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Um, I, I loved being the baseball consultant. It was, a, it was, you know, my job was to train the actors, help the director, you know, the writers. Anything that had to do with baseball, you know, I kind of had a hand in. And, and it was it was wonderful to be able to take everything I've learned in baseball and use it in a new way, in a new platform, and then to see the final product of, of a league of their own and the impact it had um, on the queer community was, was incredible. And, and we hope uh, that it could find a new home beyond Amazon. I, I certainly have a second season. Yeah, I certainly hope so. We, we had uh, Kelly McCormick on the show last year when she threw out the first pitch for uh, the Blue Jays, and she she had talked about some of the training you guys had done to get them, uh, you know, baseball ready. And, hey, she threw a very good first pitch. So, obviously, the, the help that you gave them, uh, it paid off. Yeah, Kelly actually was one of the few who had women's baseball experience. Mm -hmm. So she got to play, and, uh, boy, she's a baller. <laughs> and uh, I, I really enjoyed working with her and the rest of the cast. Well, I really hope that you guys uh, do get a, a second season to continue telling that story. Obviously, there are there's that is rich history to, to pull from, and you don't want to leave uh, a show that was as terrific as that first season uh, unfinished. Um, Dr. Justine Siegel, thank you so much for taking the time out. Keep up all the great work with Baseball for All, and we'll push people to baseballforall.com uh, to learn more about all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Justine Siegel, founder of Baseball for All, a former MLB coach with the A's in Instructional League, with Cleveland in spring training, uh, as well as at the collegiate level. A ton of great work being done at baseballforall.com. And again, uh, Canada's team qualifying for the 2024 finals of the Women's World Base, the Women's Baseball World Cup, uh, that tournament was up in Thunder Bay a couple weeks ago. They play second in their group, so they'll move on. Um, the other hemispheres group going underway in a couple of weeks here. We've got about 10 minutes left. We have lots of questions left over in the text line. Um, you can send those throughout the week. Uh, that is going to be what I challenge producer Nick Blackmore to handle over the course of the week it is uh, managing. It's a, a heavy text line today, heavy text line. So, we will get to a couple more here before we go. Uh, someone who didn't sign theirs, make sure you put your name and area code, uh, especially to those of you DMing me to say that you sent a question in. Uh, if I don't know your name, I can't find your question easily. But this person asked, if the Jays can sweep the Orioles this week, do they have a realistic shot in the AL East? Realistic? Probably not. Um, it is still... At that point, only a little over a month of games. And at that point, the lead would be down to five and a half. You wouldn't have the tiebreaker. But stranger things have happened. Look at what the Mariners have done over the last little bit. Look at what the, the run the Dodgers are on. Um, look at what the Rays did to start the season. It is not... Weird things happen in baseball all of the time. And yes, it is much less likely if you don't sweep the Orioles. But strange things happen. Uh, statistically... 
Fangraphs has the Blue Jays at a 2.9% chance of winning the division. So not zero still. Now, Fangraphs projections have generally been more optimistic about the Blue Jays than their performance and more negative about the Orioles than their performance. This just based on, you know, the way projections work and and using guys priors and regressing certain people uh, who, you know, are either young players who we can't assume will continue at this level or pitchers who don't have great track records, things like that. Um, The quality of team the rest of the way is something that's still nudges the Blue Jays. Uh, The Blue Jays also have the lightest strength of schedule of any of the AL East teams remaining. Again, once you get past Baltimore, there's a, there are five series in a row against teams that are either Cleveland or in last place in their division. So uh, you do have some real opportunity to make up ground here, but yes, to that person's question, you have to take care of business against the Orioles. If you want to have eyes on the American league East at all, Jamie in Ottawa rounds out our Vlad discussion here saying, I agree. Vlad has been a frustrating player to watch largely due to expectations, uh, but it's clear they picked a defense over offense when they put this team together. See moving Springer to right field, signing the other guys, etc. cetera, uh, leading the MLB in runs given up and mid pack and runs scored. Can we love this team for what it is and not be upset for what it's not? Uh, no, that is not how sports fandom works. Uh, in addition though, like if that were if the way you set that up was all true and they were a first place team, absolutely. As we have this conversation right now, Jamie, they are not in a playoff spot. So I don't think the love them for what they are and not what they aren't uh, aspects. I don't think it holds up super well uh, for a team that is not currently in a playoff spot. If they're winning the division, even if they had the top wild card and were looking pretty good, I, I could get there a little bit more, but yes, they have, they have been the best run prevention team in baseball, by ERA and they're not a playoff spot right now. So obviously the offense has not given them uh, enough. That balance has gone too far or maybe not the balance has gone too far in the other direction, but the offensive side has not carried their weight because this is not a playoff team as we sit here right now. Someone asks, uh, do you think Alec Manoa will ever be moved? Do they give him next season to make a change and come back? Uh, Look, the issue with exploring an Alec Manoa trade and look, to be honest, you'll have teams calling this off season. Teams work in predatory ways. Alec Manoa hasn't signed an extension yet, so he's still a minimum contract player with lots of team control and RB years ahead and things like that. Um, he also, because of the way this season played out, will no longer be a super two guy, um, which makes him even more flexible a piece moving forward. Teams are going to call, but listening on Alec Manoa calls would mean selling at the absolute low of his value. Generally, that's not the leverage position you want to be trading from, but you're a team that's in win now mode. You've got to explore everything. I don't think they'll explore it too aggressively because it's such a, such a sell low, excuse me, hiccup. Um, But anything's on the table and teams are going to be calling Ryan from Stony Creek. This was left over from last week asked, do we need to be concerned about Kevin Gosman? He hasn't had that same level of dominance since the side discomfort. Is there something lingering there or is there something teams have been zoning in on? Um, This is a bit, a bit of a a mix because there is, there was something last start that was getting honed in on. However, 
The reason the Philadelphia Phillies were able to hone in on that so effectively was that Kevin Gosman was not locating his splitter and not getting as much break on his splitter. So you could sit there and say, well, the Phillies identified the splitter and they hit it well. Most teams that identify the splitter do so and then lay off of it. This was a particularly odd case where he also happened to be not locating the splitter well and his break on it was way down. Um, That's something that we haven't really seen from him before, so I'm willing to give it a one-game pass and revisit next start out. Uh, I would also say he was very dominant against Cleveland, so... You know, this he hasn't been that dominant since the side thing. Um, you know, it's been five starts. Two of them he was really, really good in. Three of them he was just kind of okay in. 408 ERA over that stretch is all. That This could just be the ups and downs of the season. But yeah, I think anytime a guy who's in the Cy Young conversation has uh, a bad outing or, or a couple of meh outings, uh, warrants a, a closer lens. We'll see more from Kevin Gosman on Wednesday. If you're looking ahead to that series, by the way, it's Kikuchi, Gosman, Brios. The Orioles have not confirmed their starters, but if they stay on turn, it would be Grayson Rodriguez, Jack Flaherty, Kyle Gibson on their side of things. And J.D. Bunkus just walked in the studio. What's up, man? What are you doing here? How are you? trying to do stuff with it my favorite thing oh you're once every two months where you have to change your password and yeah. forget that you have roger's devices yeah and then they said get out of here you, we can't help you it was tough yeah no, that, by I, yourself. I feel like a lot of places would tell you get out of here we yeah. can't help well, you jd bunkus you so i just came in yeah. here during your show i figured i'd just pop in yeah you know, what's up be cool nothing man how um, are you feeling after that i, I thought you're you're better than so for anyone who doesn't know on the JD Bunkus podcast, mm-hmm. uh, there is a bet of the day, and JD has been red hot and yeah. often red hot hitting on the Jays. True. He looks at a struggling Blue Jays offense and Hyunjin Ryu on the mound yesterday, goes with the under 9.5. Uh, pretty bad beat, man. Actually, good beat. I would well, much rather lose immediately, like, no, it's done. When did I text you? I said, uh oh, this is dead. Oh, yeah, it was I, like five to two yeah, or something yeah, like that. I was like, this is done. Uh oh. I would always much rather lose a bet early on immediately. Like there's nothing worse than when you think you're basically counting the money and then you hit the eighth inning, you know, and one team decides to get hot or they bring in the yeah. junk reliever and you have an under and you go, wait, what, what are we doing here? This is bad. Or you have the over and they decide, oh, actually, this, is the, this guy needs to get work in today. We, we need this guy to come in here and shut down the one run that you needed. So much rather lose that. And God... Wasn't it just nice to see the Jays score runs? Five home runs. You're allowed to do that. I know. Can you do that at home, though, please? No, they can't. Can you do that at home for the people, the the good people of this city that have paid to go to all these games? I said, man, I've been to 100 Blue Jays games this year. I've seen Vladdy hit zero home runs at home. I saw the first one. Wow. I saw the Oakland one. I I was there. It was surprising. Oh, my God. Against Oakland, too. You're like, finally, you hit an Oakland In a game they lost, by the way. So you can't even even celebrate it that much. We we only have like three minutes here. But we've talked a lot about Vlad today. We had Mike Petriello of MLB.com on to discuss his uh, 11 theories piece at MLB. Where are you at with Vlad right now? Finger stuff from the weekend aside. So here's here's my interesting Vlad question. I talk about this on my show. The Petriello piece was awesome. And I said, I can't wait to listen to it. I was plugging it today on my show saying it's the two top dogs in the numbers <laughs> game going tete-a-tete with all the Vladdy numbers. So it's mostly stuff that we know, right? But haven't put a number to, right? As Jays fans where you go like, yeah, his approach doesn't look great. Looks like he's trying to pull the ball too much at times. He's hitting too many ground balls, but less than we kind of thought. Yeah. Just hasn't been an effective season, but he still hits the ball really hard. The interesting number was the meatballs that he's hitting, that he's not driving as far. Yeah. And so this is sort of my question about Vladdy right now. 
Do you entertain the idea if his finger is not at 100% to just say, use it as a bit of an excuse to sit him down and give him an extra couple of days off and hope that maybe it's like when you go to the gym after not working out for a few days and you feel really strong and you're like, man, I actually am strong. And then the next day you're dead and you have nothing. But do you try to give Vladdy one of those? It's just a very weird thing to think about potentially intentionally removing one of your only good hitters. Like, he still is that. He's got an he's OPS still plus. still third on the team on an OPS. And he's one of the only guys that hits with runners in scoring position. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird thing to think. You're going into this important series with Baltimore. But, like, psychologically, if you beat these guys, it must do wonders for your team. But, and you're in a wild card race where you're half game back. Do you remove a good guy for the long term? I, I actually think it's worth thinking about. Let's it's just a, put it that way. It's especially not. worth thinking about Tuesday because then, mm-hmm. you know, you look at it. Well, he had two and a half days off. Grayson Rodriguez right. throws a lot of hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And something in Mike Petriello's piece as well was, hey, Vlad's gone from being like the fastball eater to just and kind of surviving against fastballs. Him. So that's a, he'd be the guy in the series where you want to not protect Vlad because he's still hitting them okay, just not at the level before. But that's where you'd, uh, that's where you do it is Tuesday probably. But I'm guessing you're at where I'm at with it, which is it's never one thing. Unless right. he really is dealing with an injury, the knee thing, which to me doesn't seem like a real thing. I'm sorry. I'm just not buying it. Even um, then, I said this earlier, is like, if you are healthy enough to be playing, you're healthy enough for us to evaluate the go. results and not have that as an asterisk. If we find out after the season, mm-hmm. cool, maybe it changes your optimism for 2024. But right now, no. it's not as if that knee is going to be better tomorrow if it's been nagging him, right? It's usually a bunch of different things combining into one really tough season. The bigger question is, like, going to become, can he get hot and change everyone's minds like Bo did last year? Or is he going to struggle and we're heading into an off season where the vast majority of the discourse is about whether or not it's time to trade a guy that we once thought was like the son of Blue Jays nation. And certainly not extend him for $300 million. Uh, Kayla McGrath pointed out earlier in the show, by the way, that when the Jays played Baltimore in a big series early last September, Bo Bichette got on fire and he hit four home runs and had 10 hits over that series. So if anyone's going to get hot, now is the time. Uh, we'll be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow to tee that series up more proper. Rubinoff and McKee are coming up next. Blair, I was going to say Blair and Barker, Blair Solo in the 5-7 to seven spot uh, this week. J.D., thanks for popping by. Thanks to Dr. Justine Siegel, to Kayla McGrath, to Mike Petriello. Uh, thanks to Nick, Andrew, and Jennifer behind the glass. See you guys tomorrow.